James, and we'll be looking at verses 11 and 12. That's James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are we to judge your neighbor? May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now this morning we'll be talking about repentance, which is a very important part of the Christian faith. But because repentance does not explicitly appear in our text, it will be my intention to demonstrate that repentance is really what James is dealing with in this, in this text. So even though it's not explicitly mentioned, it's really the essence of what James is dealing with in these two verses. So what I want to do to to demonstrate the legitimacy of such a claim is give five overarching or preliminary observations concerning repentance before we address three things from the text that demonstrates that it's about repentance. So there are five things that we want to look at before we actually dive into the text. I'll begin with a working definition of what scripture means by the term repentance. So that's the first thing we'll do. We'll give a, a basic understanding of what the scripture means when it speaks of repentance. And really at its most fundamental level, the word repentance, and we see it especially as it's used in uh, the Old Testament, Repentance literally means to turn, to turn. The prophetic, in the prophetic books where uh, God uses the prophets to call his people to repentance, the term uh, is usually used, uh, the, the term turn is usually used in conjunction with repentance over and over again. Now what I'll do is I'll cite two particular places from the prophecy of Ezekiel, where the Lord is calling his people to repent, and he uses the, the phrase turn in the call to repentance. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 6, uh, and then we'll, we'll look at another one, but let's begin in Ezekiel 14, verse 6. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, of, the Lord God, repent and turn away from uh, turn away uh, from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. Repent and turn. And it's really sort of using one thing to describe the other. The second place is in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30. Same scenario, same prophet, and the Lord says... Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. According to his ways, declares the Lord, uh, declares the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest your iniquity be your ruin. So in both of these places, and you find this combination of repent and turn, throughout the prophetic warnings in the Old Testament. So the, the essence of repentance is to turn. Here's the second thing. Here's, uh, it, in, in, in the Greek New Testament, because that's the Old Testament and it's using uh, Hebrew language and, and, uh, and, and constructs. But in the New Testament, which is written primarily in Greek, the primary word that's, or the most commonly used word to describe repentance is metanoia, metanoia. And the word metanoia literally means to have a change of mind. 
So in most places, in no, most, most terms in the New Testament or most places where you find the word repent in the New Testament, a variation of the word metanoia is used and it basically means to have a change of mind or to change one's thinking. And um, in that case, it's this changing of the mind that prompts the act of turning. So it's not a different definition for repentance, but it's showing you repentance, the mechanics of, of repentance, from a different vantage point. So the idea in the Old Testament terminology is to turn. But in the New Testament, uh, the idea, which is the same thing, to turn, but it's, more, it's, it's a little more in-depth in terms of explaining the term. So the idea is that it is the change of mind that prompts the act of turning. Or to put it another way, as we see it in the New Testament, repentance is a change of mind that precipitates a change of behavior and direction. Here's a third observation. Repentance, because it is a change of mind, is a conscious turning. So it's, it's, a, it's a matter of consciousness, but here it is. Repentance is a conscious turning from one thing and a conscious turning towards another. So it's not just turning away from, but rather it's also a conscious turning towards. To go back to the Ezekiel passages, when the Lord calls his people to turn from idolatry, he is also calling them to turn towards him in worship, in true worship and devotion. So, uh, and, and, and again, the idea is they have already been engaged in one thing. And so when we couple it with, with the change of mind, his calling them to repent is to have a change of mind about what you are doing in your idolatry and then consciously turn towards the true worship and devotion of Yahweh because of a change of mind. Here's a fourth thing. In, Christian, in the Christian faith, there are two dimensions of repentance. In the Christian faith, there are two dimensions of repentance. A... There is repentance unto salvation. Repentance unto salvation. And the repentance unto salvation is the result of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the gospel. So, in other words, the Holy Spirit brings life where there was no life, <clears throat> And it brings a consciousness that was not previously there. So through the ministry of the gospel, repentance unto salvation is a conscious turning away from, or a consciousness, I should say, of our sinful state and our condemnation so that we consciously turn from that and we consciously embrace the grace of God as it is in Jesus Christ. In other words, we know here's what, what happens through the ministry of the gospel. The Holy Spirit awakens us to the standard of God's law and to our inability to reach it. And the Holy Spirit makes us conscious of the fact that we are condemned that we are sinners under the just condemnation of a holy God. <clears throat> now, therefore, understanding what we are, we then are empowered by the Spirit to turn from that and look with faith towards Christ and consciously turn to him. There is no one who is truly saved that does not come to Christ 
because they are conscious that they are condemned. There is no other way to genuinely come to Christ. So in other words, if you're just coming to Jesus for good, good advice and a good role model, you have not repented. You have not turned. So salvation, repentance unto salvation, is the result of the Holy Spirit who awakens us, enlivens us, so that we could see the dangerous position we are in before God, and then he makes us conscious of the fullness of God's grace in Christ, and we consciously turn to him, and we take refuge in his righteousness, and we find covering in him. Now, this repentance unto salvation is a one-time thing. We don't repent over and over again and get saved over and over and over again. That's one of the reasons that we do not practice rededications. We don't, we don't rededicate. We don't believe that you need to be rededicated. You say, but I've been out of church for 30 years. You were never out of the arms of God if, you are in, if your faith is in the person and work of Christ. We're not saying you didn't act a fool for 30 years. Of course you did. But you don't have to come, you don't have to get reborn again, again. So, so therefore, this repentance unto salvation is a one-time repentance. You don't have to repent over and over and over again in order to be saved. But here's the B part of it. The second dimension of Christian repentance is in the realm of our sanctification. And this involves our being brought under conviction for the sin that remains in us. And the Spirit, through the ministry of the Word of God, convicts us and causes us to consciously turn from a particular sin and to consciously turn towards conformity to the law of God. So again, repentance unto salvation is to turn as we are awakened by the Spirit from condemnation to acceptance in Christ. One time thing. In our sanctification, the Spirit brings us under conviction through the ministry of the Word, brings us under conviction for particular sins that are enlarged to us by God through his word so that we become conscious of that guilt and we consciously turn from the sin and we consciously seek to conform our pattern of behavior to the word and the law of God. And this, brothers and sisters, is not only ongoing, but it's, it's, it's an ongoing, and, and not only that, sometimes you may find yourself repenting over and over and over again for the same thing. Now, here's what we are quick to do. Well, if it was genuine, it is genuine. Every time we confess and every time we are brought under conviction and we seek to go out and do the right thing, as Paul says, evil is always present. And sometimes you may, you may be very genuine in your repentance and then you get caught up again in the same thing. That's why Jesus tells his disciples that if your brother sins against you seven times in a day, then you are to forgive him. And he comes back in repentance seven times, then go ahead and receive him. And another time when Jesus was talking about the dynamics of forgiveness, Peter just put it out there. Peter says, Lord, look, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And by the way, those are two separate occasions. But Peter says, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Jesus, he says, what, seven times? And Jesus says, no. Because he, know that, he knows perhaps that Peter was just picking up on what he said, which is covered in the 17th chapter of Luke. 
And so Peter at this point is trying to say, well, okay, what if I've done my seven? And Jesus says, no, not seven, but seven times 70. If he comes to you, and here I can, I can hear Peter thinking like, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing. How do I know he was, you know, how do I know he's serious this time? And Jesus says, if he comes to you and he seeks repentance, 70 times 7, and since Peter didn't have a cell phone or calculator, it took him a while to figure 70 times 7 out. It's 490, by the way, and that's not, that's not the cap on it. So you don't just wait to 491 and then you don't have to forgive. The point that Jesus is making is that your brother like you may struggle. And when he's trying to be sincere and he messes up and he asks for forgiveness, forgive him. And don't hold the other times against him. I've shared before, but I had a very dear friend that I grew up with and brilliant brilliant thinker. He was, you know, he was a mathematician. He taught math and so forth. And he had a rough patch in his life where he became addicted to crack cocaine. And at the time he was living with his brother and, you know, crack cocaine was smoked in a pipe. And there was, there were times where he would, he would call me over because he was, he was really struggling with it. And, and he would ask me to just, just take just take the, the, the pipe from him and, and, and ask me to break it for him. And there was a closet in his brother's house where there were way too many broken crack pipes for me to even try to count. Now here's the thing. I knew that every time he called me, he was genuine. And I knew that every broken crack pipe was a genuine act of repentance that he turned, he saw the horror of what he had done and he broke it, meaning not to ever do it again. But he found himself doing it again. The point is this, brothers and sisters, there is a repentance once unto eternal life. And that once, that one time turning means that we are, our status is forever changed. But there's another dimension of repentance that is an ongoing part of the Christian life. It includes continual repentance from the same thing sometimes over and over and over again. Now there are two quotes that I want to frame around this second or around both dimensions of, of, of repentance. One is from John Calvin. John Calvin writes this, he says, repentance is not merely the start of the Christian life, that is the one-time repentance unto salvation. He says, repentance is not merely the start of the Christian life, it is the Christian life, period. It's not the start of the Christian life, but it is the Christian life. Martin Luther puts it this way, the whole Christian life is a life of repentance. Repentance brings us into salvation. And, and because we are uh, saved, we, are, we, we have a lifetime of wrestling with sin, taking off the old, putting on the new, which is really a demonstration or a description of repentance. Here's the fifth and final preliminary observation. What makes the ongoing repentance as part of our sanctification both possible and necessary? And both of those terms are important. So what makes the ongoing repentance as, uh, as, that part, as part of our, our sanctification both possible and necessary is the fact that our one-time repentance unto salvation brings us into eternal union with the finished work of Christ. 
Now, let me explain what I mean when I say both aspects of that, because the two things that I said that, that this does is our, our ongoing sanctification is made possible and necessary. So our ongoing sanctification is possible because of the one-time salvation in uh, our one-time sanct- uh, or repentance unto salvation connects us to our, puts us into union with Christ. Therefore, we are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it is only because of our union with Christ that we can fight against sin. So it's the only reason we, it's possible for us to turn from particular sinful behaviors is because of our union with Christ. But on the other hand, the fact that we are in union with Christ makes it necessary for us to take off that which is displeasing. The fact that we are tied to Christ by virtue of our one-time repentance unto salvation empowers us. But brothers and sisters, it's because we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, which is the rationale of Paul in Colossians 3, that we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's because we are children of light that we denounce the darkness that is in us. It is because we have been bought with the price that we are to therefore see ourselves not only as as servants of God, but we are therefore to see ourselves through the lens of our position in Christ. So now, let's turn to our text. And as we turn to our text, here's what I want to do. Having laid out what we have about repentance in general, the the, the first off, the, the Old Testament emphasis of turning that repentance consists of turning, the New Testament definition of repentance as a change of mind that prompts the turning, understanding that that the Christian faith itself consists of repentance unto salvation through Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit. And it also includes continual repentance from those sins that we are aware of that we are guilty of even as we cling to Christ. As we do that, what I want to do is demonstrate from our text three areas that imply repentance. Three things. In other words, in this broader course, in the the context of of chapter 4, what James is dealing with primarily is with the behavior, the the fellowship, the, the way in which they were dealing with one another in the context of Christian fellowship. And so I would argue that what he presents in these verses is what it really means to demonstrate repentance from those things that he's listed. So here's the first thing. James is assuming, in essence, that what he has set forth in the first, in the previous verses, has both humbled and healed his audience. James is assuming that the words that he has expressed in the previous verses, not only in this chapter, but elsewhere, has humbled and healed his listeners. Now, there, in, and, and, and that being the case, he is also assuming, at this point, having confronted their sins, he is assuming that it is their intention to submit to God as he instructed them to do in verse 7. And, 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 in, and, and, and what he says in these verses explains basically what it means to submit to God and especially and specifically submitting to God as it relates to their view and their treatment of others. So that's, that's really the issue that, that James has taken up here. So specifically, you'll notice that in verses 11 and 12, 
He addresses their brothers and sisters, in other words, fellowship in the community, in the, in the, fellow, in the covenant community. So he says, don't speak evil against your brothers. But then in verse 12, he talks about not judging your neighbor. So what we want to begin with the idea that what James is assuming here, he is assuming that the words that he has set forth, the harsh terminology that he's used to expose their sins with the weightiness of the law, has broken them and has made them contrite. That indeed they are, are sorry for their actions and therefore it is their intention to submit to the will of God. So that makes it clear that the type of repentance that is being addressed in these verses is not repentance unto salvation. He's not questioning their salvation. And let me just say this real quick. When you look at how severe his critique is of this church, unlike many of us in the contemporary church, when we see the slightest thing off, then we'll say, and they claim to be a Christian. As if things that James describes here, that you're being a friend with the world and therefore acting like an enemy of God, and he does not say, and you claim to be a Christian. He's assuming that their profession of faith is a genuine faith. And he is, he is not therefore surprised at how outlandish some of their behavior is. But what he has done is he has exposed the depths of their, of, of their evil behavior. And he's challenged them because he's told them in essence you have submitted to Satan and you've resisted God. And now he's telling them to reverse it. Now he says, submit to God. Notice what he says. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse yourselves in the grace of God. So if you've truly been broken, if you've truly been, if you've truly been challenged, if your heart is truly con contrite, then submit to God. And so the question would be, in this category, in this context, what does submission to God look like? Other, or put it another way, what does repentance look like? In this regard, what does repentance look like? And that's what James is, James is assuming before we can, can lay out what it will look like. He says this, therefore, brothers, he's assuming that what he, who he's addressing at this point do not want to continue down the line of doing the bidding of the evil one. So James, if that is the case, you've, you've broken me already. You've already told us what we should not do. So what will repentance look like in this category? So the first thing, again, that we want to begin with is that James is the assumption upon which James enters into this pattern for repentance in this context. The assumption that he's working with is A, that they are saved. And because they are saved, he is assuming that it is their intention to submit to the law of God. Well, that brings us to a second thing. Therefore, if they are going to turn from sinful views and sinful treatment of others, they will have to turn from, a, uh, from an overinflated sense of their own moral authority. If you're going to treat neighbors and brothers right, then because remember, repentance is turning from and then turning to. As you've had a change of mind, and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So in this instance, because the action that he calls for is to not speak evil against your brother. And so in order to do that, what James is saying, okay, now if you want to know what repentance is like, in this instance, repentance is really at this point is a matter of changing yourself, turning from you, 
being the highest moral authority and turn towards God's law as the highest moral authority. You see, in to, to, to speak or to act, or, or James, the, the, the way James puts it, is that to speak or act towards one's brother and or neighbor in a way that is contrary to what God has established in his law is to set your law in opposition to his. In other words, what it's, it's one thing to if, if a brother or a sister or a neighbor is walking contrary to the law of God, then we have a right to call that and, and, and to challenge that. But what James is addressing here is not, not people taking the high ground of God's law as they deal with neighbors and as they deal with one another, but his, the essence of what he's saying throughout in, in chapter 3 as well as in chapter 4 is that they have, they have a whole different standard. In other words, why, what is your issue with your neighbor? What is your issue with your brother and sister? The one that you have talked about. What is your issue with them? He said, well, I don't like. He said, well, see, that's the problem. Because your action towards your brothers and your sisters, as well as towards your neighbor, does not begin with what you like. You are not the standard maker. And so that's the way James challenges it here. You notice that in both of these verses that what James does is basically he says that to set your standard, what offends you as the standard makes you the judge of that standard. And so he says, therefore, uh, he says, judge or, or don't, don't judge people, in essence, according to your standard because you're the judge. But instead, he says, that, we, that self is not the standard. So in both of these verses, he says in verse 12, which summarizes it, even though he addresses that judging in both 11 and 12, but in verse 12, he summarizes it, there is only one lawgiver. And there's only one judge. So repentance in this situation is a conscious turning away from your own feelings, your own perceptions, and your own experiences as the basis for which your are the basis for your words and your actions towards others. Now we've all had those people in our lives or we've seen them. Sometimes they're not even in our lives. Sometimes they just pass through and we'll say something like, I just don't like them. Okay, confess that and recognize that you are not the one who sets the standard. That's what, that's what James is saying clearly here. He says, don't speak evil against one, against one another, brothers, because the one who speaks against a brother or judges, and the term that's translated here as judges, is one who, who has the right to avenge, taking vengeance on someone. And we are told in scriptures that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so sometimes we use our feelings and sometimes we use our experiences or as some people say, I just, I just go with my gut. Something is just wrong with them. I just don't like them. James says, you, you don't, you, your interactions in your horizontal relationships has been defined for you by God. And here's what he tells us in terms of our horizontal relationships. He says, don't lie to one another. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet your neighbor. Doesn't matter what color. Doesn't matter what political persuasion. Don't do it. Now, here's what happens is in, in, we, we have our own predilections towards others. And then it's reinforced by other sources. 
So repentance in this regard, repentance in dealing with neighbors as we ought, the, 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 what repentance will look like is a turning away from the standard that allows you to make yourself the judge over other people and to turn towards the standard of law that gives God the right, which he owns, to determine how we are to treat others. And you know what? Because we're fallen, we're always going to have reasons to put caveats on it. And repentance means that we consciously and continuously turn from a mode of behavior towards others that has been validated by external sources other than God. I've, I've really been impressed in the last couple of years in following the story of Fred Rogers, you know, Mr. Rogers. And last, I think it was last year, we watched a, a, a documentary on Mr. Rogers because I, I didn't grow up on Mr. Rogers. And uh, so I didn't know anything about him. When my son came around, I, I didn't know anything about him. So we didn't bring him up on Mr. Rogers, even though he would watch him on occasion. But I didn't know much about Mr. Rogers. But I knew that he was easy to make jokes about. People would look at him. They say, oh, look at him. And, and we make all kind of creepy jokes about him. And no one really knew him. And then I, I, I got a chance to watch the documentary, and I know now there's, there's a film with, with, with Tom Hanks playing the character of Mr. Rogers. And when I watched that documentary, I mean, I, I learned something about Mr. Rogers, and it's like, wow, here's a man who believes what the Bible says about sin and salvation, and he lives it. And then I, I listened to an interview from a lady who actually wrote a biography of Mr. Rogers. She made this observation because the host, as they were talking to her, said, you know, he's an easy. In fact, one of the hosts said that he had two experiences about Mr. Rogers that he's ashamed of. One, he, when he was uh, graduating from Princeton, Mr. Rogers was, uh, was the commencement speaker and this brother, who is a, a Christian and a Christian minister, he didn't know anything about Miss Rogers, but he was an adult. He's graduating from Princeton, and so he thought he was too creepy, and so therefore he chose not to go because he looked at Mr. Rogers as someone not to be taken seriously. The second event was, was something else a few years later, and something came up about, oh, uh, uh, a friend of his that had also graduated from Princeton talked about uh, his father actually went to seminary with Mr. Rogers, and he relished in telling the story that, that his father, this, his friend's father, beat up Mr. Rogers when he was in seminary because he thought he was a sissy. And said he talked about how funny he thought that was. And as I listened to the interview, the woman who wrote the book, she made this observation. That Mr. Rogers was, number one, consistently himself. And she said because he stood out, he so stood on what he believed, he was strange. It made him look odd. And because we don't like what is odd, rather than delving into it, we judge it from afar. But brothers and sisters, I think the thing, the beauty about Mr. Rogers, and if you go back and certainly watch the documentary, he addressed all of the issues of his day with grace. And the thing about Mr. Rogers is that in the midst of political turmoil, in the midst of civic unrest, he never lost sight of God's commands to be kind-hearted. And he wasn't afraid to go against the grain 
in addressing the issues of his day. And he didn't really care that people made jokes about him. He was aware, he just didn't care. Brothers and sisters, here's what James is saying. Your problem in these relationships is that you have, it, be, it has become too easy for you to speak ill of people because they've offended you. It becomes too easy for you to, to, to otherize someone because they don't meet your standard. Repentance means, in this instance, to turn from that standard of you and turn to the standard of God's law of which he is the judge over. Because in your kingdom and in your realm, you have your own laws and you're judging people who have been made by God according to your standards, and you didn't make them. Here's what something I find interesting that he says in verse 12, when he says that there's only one law and one judge, and, there, and here's what he says, there's only, he's the one who's able to save, and he's the one who's able to destroy. So think about it for a moment. If you if you are the standard of right and wrong. You don't have the power to save or to destroy anyone. Now, I know putting them out of your social circle, taking them out of your, your friends list or whatever, maybe you think you can. And then in your small world, our small world, we think that bringing someone back into the circle is essential to saving them. But the worst part of it is that there are some that we have X'd out for whatever external reasons that we have, and we have no intention of saving them. James is reminding us that if you really want, if, if you have truly submitted your desires to submit to the law of God, because he's assuming again that you have been humbled by what he has said and you have been healed by what he has said and it is your desire therefore to submit to God so what does that repentance look like it looks like you retiring as judge and let God be judge because you don't know the hearts of individuals and you don't have the power to exonerate and you certainly don't have the power to extinguish. And to act like we are is to set ourselves in the place of God. Well, that brings us to a third thing, as he, or a second thing as it relates to the overarching message here, or is that they are now, if they are to repent, they are to turn from self as the source and they are to turn to God and his law as the source. So having rebuked them earlier in the previous chapter for being comfortable in praising God and cursing their neighbors or those who are made in the image of God in the same instance. And then in chapter 4, James refers to a pattern of contentions and, or, or contentious uh, conversations that they've had as, as he characterizes them as being quarreling and fighting. Therefore, in this regard, once we have turned from or once we have turned from us as being the moral authority and now turn to the moral authority of God repentance means being intentional in refraining from speaking evil to our brothers and to our neighbors again the challenge is this what you've done and so James has taken the pattern of behavior that they've been comfortable with. 
And he now says, so he has removed them as the moral authority. Now he says, in going forward. That's the way verse 11 begins. In going forward. Don't speak evil to your brothers. In going forward, don't be contentious. Now, what's going to happen? Just like my friend with his broken crack pipes. You, you might mess up and, and, and start speaking evil and go back into the same pattern of contentions that you're used to. And hopefully the same thing that humbled you this time will humble you the next time. Now, when it comes to our speech... And we've addressed this in, in various contexts. But when James speaks of speaking evil against our brothers, when it comes to our speech with others, as we've noted before, the law of God should govern our speech in three important areas. Number one, God's law should govern, in, uh, it should govern what we say to others. That's why we're told not to lie and not to bear false witness. And that's why the Bible in the New Testament especially speaks harshly against, against gossipers and slanderers. So let God's law intentionally speak to us or govern what we say to one another. That we are intentional in seasoning our words with grace. A lot of times we want to fly off the cuff and we don't have a cuff to fly off of. And so you say, ah, I just speak what's on my mind. Exactly. And understand what's on your mind and your heart, if not intentionally seasoned with grace, is as contaminated as everything else. God's word should govern what we say to one another. Speaking the truth in love. But secondly, God's word, God's law governs what we say about one another. Not just in their presence, but in their absence. So God's word, let, let God's word be intentional in that. Be intentional in what you allow to come out of your mouth to your brother and sister. Remember who it is you're speaking to. You say, oh, they're just so-and-so. No, first off, here's where we begin. They are an image bearer of God. Martin Luther says, the holiest thing that we'll see on any given day is another human being. And when we fail to see that, then we begin to, to bring out other standards by which we can approach them. But not only are they image bearers of God, but at the very worst, they are neighbors. In the second table of the law, says that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves without any qualification. Doesn't matter color, nationality, ethnicity, none of that matters. They're neighbors. And then thirdly, they may be brothers and sisters in the Lord. So Paul admonishes us to do good to all men, but especially to the household of God. So therefore, God's word or God's law ought to govern first what we say to our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors. It also should govern what we say about them. But then God's word or God's law also ought to govern what we do not say. Now here's what I mean by what we do not say. Not only refraining, I think it's a twofold refraining. One, refraining from things that are hurtful and unnecessary, whether to them or about them, that we intentionally refrain from. God's word ought to govern us in what we do not say. You know what, we get cutesy with sin. And we'll say, ah, well, I'm not going to say it. But you know, that's not, that's not allowing what you don't say to be governed by what God has already established. That's, that's you being cute. Because you know your audience already knows what you're saying. But I think there's another thing that we in our sinfulness are also prone to. We're prone to refrain from speaking peace, comfort, 
and kindness and even words of gratitude that God's law compels us to do. In other words, I think when, it, when we talk about God's law governing what we do not say, I think it means that we sh- God's, God's law should govern, uh, should, should be the basis of what we f- refrain from saying, as James mentions in verse 11. But I think if we allow God's law to govern us, it'll make us say sometimes what we are too stubborn, too proud, and too obstinate to say. That we would go to the one who has brought us rebuke and thank them. That we would not be, we would not be sinfully silent when our brothers and sisters are hurting. When our brothers and sisters could use a word of encouragement that we would be sinfully, intentionally silent because we have an ought against them. You're not the judge. That's what James is saying. You're you're not the judge. And so repentance in this manner will not only require that you change yourself from being the moral authority and let God be the moral authority and the judge of what is and is not appropriate for you to, or in, in terms of your conduct. Repentance is also, it also means intentionally trying to govern your pattern of conversation according to the standard of God's law. That we're not just accidentally kind, we ought to be intentionally so. And sometimes we draw our lines in the sand and because we've been so comfortable for, with not speaking to people for so long, That we don't feel a need to. But God has so connected us in the body of Christ that we shouldn't be comfortable in our obstinate silence. But here's the third and final thing that repentance looks like in this regard. Repentance in this context includes seeing others in the categories that God has given us rather than through the category of the categories of the world. And to go back to the point that we made earlier, all men and women are either our neighbors or our brothers and our sisters. All of the other things that we have heaped upon us and therefore we must treat them in this way fades before the fact that they are our neighbors. You say, well, you don't know what they did. Okay, if they are guilty neighbors and guilty brothers and sisters, there should be laws that determine their guilt, and you're not that law. It doesn't mean that people all do right, but it simply means that I don't have a right to choose how I treat individuals because of the categories that I've created. They are my neighbors, and they are my, or my brothers and sisters in the Lord. They are, they, they are not a, a demographic first. They are not an ethnic group first. They are not a political party first. They are not their fashion first. What they are is first and foremost image bearers of God. We know they're sinful because we are. But they are image bearers of God. And if they are not in the family of God, they are at least our neighbors. And I don't have a right to think, speak, or act towards that neighbor in a way that is different and contrary to what the law that has been established by God and at, at, listen, if they're not just our neighbors, and this is something that we've addressed in the past, that, that we have gotten too comfortable with contentions in our churches, in the body of Christ. They're not just our neighbors. 
but they are vital organs and limbs in the same body that we are in. So we need to be intentional in turning away from our standards and what we like and what we prefer. Oh, brothers and sisters, just think about the trivial things that we have justified, that we think have justified our ill treatment of others that we share at the same table from. Ah, I don't, you know, I, I never did like him. They, we, we don't even, we, we, because they won't, they, they won't even allow us to, 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 to do the praise dances. So, you know, I ain't got time for him. What? What? Well, you know, she said this years ago, and, and they're, really? And that's why Jesus uses the weight of law when he says, a new law I have given to you. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to believers. And the new law that I've given to you is to love one another as I have loved you. Brothers and sisters, do you know how irritating you are to Jesus Do you know how repulsive you are in and of yourselves to Jesus? How annoying we must be to God. But while we were yet enemies, he came and brought us into his family. And even when we mess up, he doesn't speak evil. You know, and, and, and one, one concluding thought here to illustrate what James is talking about. You remember when Jesus goes to, to John and John baptized him, John the Baptist, and then Jesus goes to town preaching, John gets in prison. And the same John the Baptist that when he saw Jesus coming, he says, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And then Jesus didn't visit him. Not only did he not visit him, but he didn't even let him free. He didn't set him free from prison. John is sitting around with his disciples and he says, and I need you to go ask him something. You go ask Jesus if he's the one. Or should we look for another? When the disciples get to Jesus he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't betray John. He doesn't tear him down. He doesn't talk about his weakness. What he tells those who brought him that news, he says, of all of them prophets born of a woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. That's what he says. This man who spoke boldly when he saw Jesus coming and so humbled at his presence that he says, I'm not even worthy to tie the laces of your shoe, let alone baptize you. Now in a moment of self-pity, Jesus doesn't use the pity of John to cancel him. Of all of the prophets born of a woman, there's been none greater than John. And then knowing John's love of the scriptures, he says, and by the way, go tell John this. He'll understand. Go tell him that the blind have their sight given to them. Go tell them, go tell him that the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he'll know exactly what you mean. Brothers and sisters, repentance from toxic fellowship. Repentance from, from ungodly conversations with and about others. It means to recognize that your feelings are not the standard. And it means to turn, to be intentional in what you say and how you say it, as well as in what you don't say. And it also means... That the categories by which we will see men and women 
the categories that have been established in God's law so that we will not allow our favorite news source to otherize others, flawed as they are, wrong as they may be, but they are still image bearers of God. And we are not the ones to judge because we can neither destroy nor save. Repentance, I think, is what this, these two verses are about. Repentance in trusting that the people of God who have heard the word of God in these previous verses have been humbled and are ashamed. But they have also been healed and therefore empowered to seek to submit to the authority and the will of God, even in their dealings with others. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thanking you for this privilege of fellowship and worship. We thank you for your word that continues to remind us of the sufficiency of your grace for all of our sins. And as we have heard your word, we pray, Father, that we would avail ourselves to your law as, as the standard by which we are to conduct ourselves and the lens through which we are to deal with our neighbors as well as our brothers and sisters. Thank you for your spirit who has given us the ability to turn to Christ for, for eternal life and empowers us to live daily conform to his, his thoughts, to his grace, and to your word. Be with us now as we leave this place, and we pray that that which we have heard would go from our ears to our hearts and back to our thoughts so that we would think, speak, and act more and more like the children of God that we are. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?